And then there were four. The conference championship matchups are set in the NFL, but we've got a championship of our own tonight. We need to take care of first. It's a sports pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad you're along as we start a new week. We are right in the midst of a football smorgasbord. We've got the four divisional games this weekend in NFL action to break down. Only one was a close game. But it was still a great weekend of football. We'll talk about all of those matchups. Plus, we'll preview tonight's college football national championship game between LSU and Clemson. And I'm going to rank the five NFL head coaching hires. Now that all five are set, everybody's got to coach again. Who had the best hire? Who had the worst? I'm going to rank them one through five throughout the show. Glad to have you along. Let's start, though, by jumping into the four games this weekend and how they affected our pick'em standings, how they affected the NFL and the fallout, what have you. Let's start on Saturday afternoon where the Niners dominate the Vikings 27-10. It was a 7-7 game early on, but the Vikings held to just seven first downs, could not muster any offense after that opening drive. San Fran just looked dominant. It's their first playoff win in six years. And Jimmy Garoppolo did his thing 11 and 19, 131 yards, one TD and one pick. Kirk Cousins, 21 to 29, 172 yards, one TD, one pick. I mean, it was just kind of okay performances from both of those two. I mean, Minnesota needed more from Kirk Cousins, but even if he had a monster game, it still probably doesn't change the outcome of it. Meanwhile, Dalvin Cook just never could get going. Nine touches for 18 yards. Tevin Coleman goes over the century mark with 105 rushing yards and two rushing TDs for San Fran. Stephon Diggs, just two catches, 57 yards, as the Vikings were just limited offensively. They just didn't have anything going. It was enough, though, however, to get Kevin Stefanski a new head coaching job. Vikings offensive coordinator is off to Cleveland. We'll get into that a little bit later in the show. But the Vikings just look stagnant, and San Fran looks like a complete team. And they really do, and I want to break down their matchup that is coming up this weekend and where they stack up with the Packers here a little bit later on. Let's go to the Titans and Ravens because we talked about in the show last week which home team is the most vulnerable this weekend. Well, the only one that lost was the one that we might have felt the most safe about, the Baltimore Ravens. They fall to Tennessee 28-12, to a game where Tennessee set the tone early. They got ahead 14-0. Man, Ryan Tannehill might have something to this. He throws for just 88 yards, 7 of 14. That's twice now that he's thrown for 80-something yards. He's been held well below 100, and he's won twice in the playoffs against the Patriots and against the Ravens, both on the road. He has thrown 29 passes, not completions. He's attempted 29 passes this postseason, and he hasn't even hit 200. He's barely across 150 yards, and he's got wins over the one and three seeds. Derrick Henry, 30 touches, 195 yards. He just looks like the most unstoppable force that we've seen in the postseason in how long? Yeah, and here's the thing. I know that Miami never had a running back like Derrick Henry when Tannehill was there. But how big of an indictment is this on Adam Gase? Because Tannehill was a pretty darn good quarterback, as it turns out. He is a pretty darn good game manager, should we say that. And he makes some throws when he needs to. But man, I know they never had a Derrick Henry down there in Miami. But they let this guy go? I mean, this guy has found some kind of formula to get paid a lot by doing less. He's thrown 29 passes in two games. And he is going to get paid a mega contract when this season is over. 
How about yesterday's games? The Texans get out to a 24 nothing lead, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, Kansas City, who had the second-best special teams unit analytically coming into this postseason, they get killed on special teams in the opening quarter. And Houston jumps out to that 24 nothing lead. All of a sudden, Kansas City is right back into it. They get within one score in a span of about three and a half minutes. They score three touchdowns. They get one more before the half to take the lead, and they go on to win 51-31. That's the Chiefs offense that you never felt like they were out of the game. But did you think that they were going to come all the way back in one quarter? I mean, they put up 51 points in about three quarters. This Chiefs offense is so much fun. They are so dynamic. And that's absolutely why this might be Andy Reid's best shot at winning a Super Bowl. And then last night, of course, they had Green Bay beat Seattle. It was a great way to open the game for Green Bay, up 21-3 to early. And then the Seahawks came roaring back. They had the ball late with a shot. They had to punt Green Bay able to convert a couple of third downs late, and that would seal the deal. Although, let's be honest, Jimmy Graham was short on that last third down. Yeah, I watched it in real time, and I thought he got across the line. It's not until they slowed it down frame by frame that you could tell he was short. But I get why they made that call, because like I saw, it, it looked like he got the first down in real time. I get that was a call in the field. There wasn't enough there to overturn it, but you did slow it down frame by frame, and it did look like he was short, but I get it. There's not enough to overturn the call on the field, so it's got to stand. Green Bay wins it 28-23 as they are heading back to the NFC Championship for the first time since 2016. So before we look ahead to this weekend's matchups, let me update our pick'em standings. Jake Durant still in the lead by one game. He is 68-36. and Now keep in mind, every game this weekend was worth either four wins or four losses. And this weekend, both the games are going to be worth eight wins or losses. So Jake is 68 and 36. He picked San Fran, Kansas City, and Green Bay correctly. He missed on Baltimore. I had the same pick, so I'm still one game back at Jake at 67 and 37. You've got John Michael Hoefling that's elevated himself to third at 61 and 43. He had a good weekend. He picked San Fran, Tennessee, and Kansas City all correct, but he did pick Seattle to win last night. Ryan Steeg is 58 and 46, and then Tyree Smith is 57 and 47. Those are our pick'em standings as we head into conference championship week. Just three games left in the NFL season. We've got the two championship games, which of course are weighted for eight wins or losses. And we have the Super Bowl, 16 wins or losses. So it's entirely possible that any of us can still win our pick'em league championship. I tell you what though, let's look ahead to this weekend. We've got the AFC matchup set with the Chiefs and the Titans. And then on the NFC side of things, we've got San Francisco and Green Bay. Let's start with the NFC game because we saw that earlier this year. The Packers and Niners in Santa Clara at the end of November didn't go the way that the Packers wanted, needless to say, a 37-8 loss. You think about the way that game started, though. Green Bay was driving. And I know people aren't going to feel sorry for the Packers if a bad call goes against them. There was a bad, unsportsmanlike call against Green Bay early on. 
it set them back and the Niners got that short field and they immediately score. It just kind of set the tempo for the rest of the game. I don't believe this is anything like a 29-point game that we're going to see this weekend. I think we're going to see a much different game and a more competitive one. But I think there's still questions as to what the Packers are, who their identity is. Because this year, Aaron Rodgers was largely a complimentary piece and he wasn't the Aaron Rodgers of old. Yesterday, he looked like the Aaron Rodgers of old. He looked like playoff Aaron and that's what the Packers need. Because you put these two teams up side by side, you look at each position group, who has the edge? Almost every position group, you got to say the Niners have the edge except quarterback, and probably running back as well. So Aaron Jones and Aaron Rodgers will be the most important players for the Packers this weekend. But you match up the other position groups, tight end, George Kittle, Jimmy Graham. How about the wide receiver group? You've got Emmanuel Sanders is the clear number one on one side. Debo Samuel's come along really well. And then got a few other guys that have stepped up and played roles. On the other side, there's not a lot outside Devontae Adams. How about on defense? Yeah, Green Bay makes their living defensively because of their rush package, because of their front seven. Well, you look at San Fran and that front seven, <laughs> as good as Green Bay's is, they're they're better in San Francisco. San Fran's front four and their front seven are better than Green Bay's. You look at the secondary, and Green Bay's got some playmakers back there, Kevin King, Jair Alexander. On San Fran's side, I'm taking Richard Sherman and company. You look at the head coaching matchup, I don't know that there's a real clear winner between those two. I might give Shanahan just a slight edge, but they're pretty much cut from the same cloth. So to me, the clear advantage for Green Bay this weekend will be the quarterback play and the running back game. You've got to dominate those two facets if you're Green Bay. To go on the road and win at Santa Clara against a Niner team that looks complete outside of the quarterback position, really, if Jimmy G doesn't stumble all over himself... The Niners are a complete team. If Jimmy is just a game manager, which he's been the last couple of weeks, then the Niners are going to be okay. For the Packers, they have to dominate the quarterback and running back games this weekend to have a shot because those are the two clear areas where Green Bay is better than San Francisco. How about on the AFC side of things? You've got a team that's going to want to dominate Tom Possession with Derrick Henry and company against a team that has that lightning-quick strike offense you never feel like you're out of a game with this Kansas City team, with what Pat Mahomes and company were able to do yesterday. Pat Mahomes is just so much fun to watch. And this is going to be a lopsided time possession game. Kansas City doesn't care if time possession is 3-1, to one, something like that. Because they are such a quick strike offense, they can put up massive numbers in the blink of an eye. Now, who will get one of those funny bounces, one of those funny breaks to go their way? Who's going to win the turnover battle? To me, those questions are a lot more important than time possession or anything like that. Tannehill might throw for another 7-15 performance for 80-something yards. He might do it again. Doesn't matter as long as Derrick Henry can do his thing. Do we trust the Chiefs' defense enough to stop him this time around? Because you remember, they played in the regular season. Derrick Henry just dominated that squad. But... That seemed to be the turning point because I said on the show after their regular season meeting that this KC defense could not stop a nosebleed. Well, that seemed to be the wake-up call. Steve Spagnola's got that group turned around. They're playing really good football right now. Now, granted, they gave up 21 yesterday to Houston, but you think about the special teams factored into that, plus the adjustments were made in-game, 
And you have got a lot of reason to be optimistic about the Kansas City defense going up against Tennessee this weekend. Tennessee's pretty good defensively themselves. But man, this Chiefs team, what they did yesterday, it's got to make you feel pretty darn encouraged because they were down early on. That wasn't on Pat Mahomes. I mean, you think about it. Pat Mahomes literally made no mistake when his team got out to that 21 nothing deficit. You go back and find me a mistake Pat Mahomes made. There were way too many drops. They corrected that later on. And Travis Kelsey continues to make his case for why he should be the top receiver in the NFL. I still think it's Kittle, but I think there is a debate to be had there between Kittle and Kelsey. The Chiefs, I believe, are going to win this weekend. Jury's still out on the Niners and Packers for me. But man, I, I'm, I'm leaning San Francisco. I don't know yet. I'm still working on that. But if Aaron Rodgers and Aaron Jones can dominate at their respective positions and dominate their facet of the game, what they can control, then Green Bay has a real shot to win in Santa Clara this weekend. Let's take our first time out. When we come back, let's preview tonight's college football national championship game next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back, Tanner Hoops with you. Glad you're along. This evening in New Orleans, the college football playoff national championship game features LSU against Clemson. LSU has won two national titles in football. Both times, it's come in New Orleans. Tonight, they have a chance to make it three, essentially a home crowd. They take on a Clemson team that we've wondered, how good are they really? Unlike LSU, Clemson is not going to be accused of playing one of the toughest schedules of the modern era But you look at who they beat toward the end of the season, what they were able to do rallying against Ohio State in the playoff and getting back to this stage, and they're definitely a team that deserves to be here. And this is a coin flip game for me. This is a game where I wouldn't be shocked if it goes either way. I would be shocked if it's more than like a four or five point victory for either team. It's going to be a close one, or at least I'm anticipating a close one. We don't have a clear favorite. We have a Clemson team that, again, while they're not accused of playing one of the toughest schedules of anyone in recent memory, they still have a chance to win their third national title in the last four years. Nobody's done that since Nebraska back in the 90s. It's not supposed to happen in the modern era. It's not supposed to happen in modern college football. And yet, the Tigers have a chance to do it tonight. Will they be able to slow down or even contain maybe the most prolific offense in football? Yeah, it is maybe the most prolific offense in football. Not Mike Leach, not Lincoln Riley's, but this team, this LSU squad, led by the Heisman winner, Joe Burrow. Let me put it this way. I do believe that this is going to come down to the LSU offense against the Clemson defense. Although Clemson offensively, they're not too shabby themselves. Both these teams are averaging north of 45 points per game. But I think it comes down to the LSU offense against the Clemson defense. You have two different wide receivers that have 18 touchdown passes on that LSU side. Plus, you've got the most accurate quarterback in college football this year. they got a couple of nice rushers, too. LSU offensively is a juggernaut. They have been doing this. They've been putting up the numbers they have pretty comparable to Clemson offensively in the SEC. Clemson has done it in the ACC. I get it. I know Clemson is for real and that's why they're here, but there's a big difference between the teams you'll see in the SEC and the teams you'll see in the ACC. 
and we hold Clemson strength the schedule against them so much. At first it was, yeah, they're in the college football playoff because they play such a weak schedule. Their marquee non-conference game was supposed to be Texas A&M. That didn't live up to the hype. Texas A&M didn't live up to the hype that was put on them in the preseason. So they were in a weak conference and they won out. Okay, yeah, you got to put them in the playoff. Then they beat Ohio State. Now the narrative is, oh yeah, well, they're for real, even though they played mostly an easy schedule. But those numbers are inflated because of that easy schedule. Sure, they beat Ohio State. Yeah, they deserve to be here. They earned it. But those numbers would look a lot different if they played a schedule like Ohio State or LSU did. I don't doubt that the offenses are both going to be prolific tonight. I would expect at least one, if not both. I do think both have a relatively reasonable shot of scoring in the 30s tonight. 35-31 seems to be like a popular pick. I, I don't know which team you would put on top, but there's a real chance the over-under could very well reach 65, maybe even 70 points. The offenses are prolific. But I like Clemson just a little bit better defensively, led by Isaiah Simmons, that star linebacker. I like them just a little more defensively. They're allowing just 11 points per game on average, and I get they've played the ACC for most of the year, whereas LSU has averaged 21 points allowed in the SEC. But I like that defense put together by Brett Venables, and he's going to come up a lot more later on this segment. We're ranking the NFL head coaching hires in the next segment. Let's do some college football coach rankings while we have the chance. We can jump into that here now. I want to rank the coaches in college football right now. Because as I see it, there are two tiers. And this is a great segue because I wanted to decide where I put Ed Orgeron. For me, the coaching tiers right now, the top tier has Dabo Sweeney and Nick Saban. The next tier, oh, that would be guys like Kirby Smart, Lincoln Riley, I don't know where Ryan Day falls into yet. I want to see more of him. And then the question is, where is Ed Orgeron? Is Ed Orgeron on a tier with Kirby Smart, Lincoln Riley? Guys that coach their teams to the playoff, they don't have that championship? He's not in the tier with Dabo and Saban yet. Now, until somebody wins titles and probably multiple titles, nobody else is going to be. I tell you what, though. I believe Ed Orgeron is smack in the middle of those two tiers. He's in a tier of his own below Dabo and Saban, and above Smart and Riley. And I don't think that changes regardless of the outcome tonight. I don't think that he's on the tier with Dabo and Saban yet, even if he wins tonight, because he's going to need multiple championships. I want to see multiple seasons of Ed Orgeron having this kind of success. But I do think he's done enough to put him above both Lincoln Riley and Kirby Smart. Ed Orgeron has established a dynasty at LSU. Even though they have been Bama's punching bag for the last few years, nobody has more top 10 or top 25 victories than Ed Orgeron does. In the last four years, Ed Orgeron has built LSU into a perennial dynasty. That They are one of the giants of college football again. They're one of those teams you don't want to match up with. Now sure, he's only got one playoff appearance in the last four years. You look back at Kirby Smart, well, he was in the national championship game just a couple of years ago. Georgia, I think they've been in there twice. I think they've been in the playoff twice in the championship game once and lost in overtime. Oklahoma is coming off their third consecutive trip to the college football playoff, albeit they've never won in the playoff. They have never won a college football playoff game. Ed Orgeron does that this year, and for me, he's above Lincoln Riley and Kirby Smart already. 
because he has built LSU into one of those teams that you feel has a real shot at winning a national championship. We all knew Oklahoma would be good coming into this year. They'd probably make the playoff. You never felt like they were going to win the title this year. I don't think any of us really felt like Georgia was going to win the title this year. We knew they'd be good. They'd have a shot at the playoff. LSU was one of those teams where you start thinking, yeah, this team could win the national championship. I don't think any of us ever felt that with Oklahoma or Georgia this year. We may not have thought LSU was a championship caliber team in the beginning, but we sure did about the midway point in the season. I don't know that we ever felt that way about Oklahoma and Georgia. There's a different aura about that program, about LSU. They've turned themselves into one of the top dogs in college football. Now, I do want to see multiple national championships for Matt Orgeron before I put him in a tier with Dabo and Saban. But if you want proof of the way that the culture shifted at LSU and what Ed Orgeron has been able to instill there, just look at the last two games he's coached. He's beaten both Kirby Smart and Lincoln Riley. Beat them both handily. He beat Georgia pretty handily in the SEC championship game. That offensive line put on a clinic, and then they just throttle Oklahoma in the college football playoff semifinal. To me, Ed Orgeron has already done enough, not just this year. I'm not putting too much emphasis on what he's done this year. Getting to the playoff, getting to the championship, beating those two teams, but the teams that they've beaten the last four years. The overall resume and the quality of wins that LSU has in the last four years has been better than Oklahoma's and Georgia's. Sure, Oklahoma and Georgia have been to the playoff more, but they haven't done as much as Ed Orgeron has in his one Sample size with the college football playoff. I believe Coach O is already ahead of Lincoln Riley and Kirby Smart and Ryan Day just this year alone. So if I'm going to rank these college football coaches, I'm going with Ed Orgeron at number three, Dabo Sweeney at number two, Nick Saban is still number one. Now if you want to go college football staff, I think Clemson is number one. But for me, Nick Saban is still the top dog when we talk about individual head coaches in college football. Because here's the biggest indictment against Dabo Sweeney. Dabo's been at Clemson for over a decade. And they didn't start to become a dynasty until about midway through his tenure. What changed? Well, they picked up the best defensive coordinator in college football. They picked up Brent Venables. To me, the biggest indictment against him being the best coach in college football is his defensive coordinator. Now, I really do think Dabo is one of the best coaches in college football, but I don't think he's the best. And the biggest indictment against him is how good Clemson's defense has been under Brent Venables. He came over from Oklahoma in 2013, and that's when Clemson really started becoming a dynasty. Brent Venables is one of those guys that is happy being an assistant. He loves Clemson. He's not looking to leave, doesn't want to be a head coach somewhere else. He wants to be a defensive coordinator at Clemson. And as long as he's there, Clemson's defense will continue to be one of the best in college football. I always like to put football coaches in two categories, schemers and culture guys. Dabo Sweeney is absolutely a culture guy. He is a guy that's going to hype you up and make you want to run through a brick wall for him. Dabo is absolutely a culture guy. And I'm not saying that he can't scheme an offense. He is intelligent about football, but his biggest asset is being a culture guy. Brent Venables is his opposite. Brent Venables is an absolute schemer. He's a perfectionist. He's a guy that, according to Bruce Feldman, who writes for The Athletic, 
Dabo had to help learn to appreciate and enjoy the success. And those two have combined to be one of the best coaching tandems in college football history. And as long as Brent Venables is there, he's going to continue to elevate Dabo in the Clemson football program. You can look up the numbers before Venables came to Clemson and after. And it's remarkably different. I'm not saying Dabo is not a great coach or he's not one of the best in college football. I still think he's number two. I really do. I still think he's top two in college football right now. But Brent Venables doesn't get enough credit for the job that he does making Clemson as successful as they are. So if I'm ranking college coaches, it's still Saban, Dabo, and then Coach O, followed by a mix of Ryan Day, Lincoln Riley, and Kirby Smart. Those three can fight amongst themselves for spots four, five, and six. I tell you what, college football playoff coming up tonight here on the ESPN family of networks, ESPN TV, and ESPN Radio. That includes ESPN UP. Kickoff is set for 8 o'clock. Sean McDonough will have the call here on ESPN UP and along the family of ESPN Radio Networks. With that, let's take our next time out as we just come up on the halfway point of the show. When we come back, I'm going to rank the five NFL head coaching hirings this offseason next on ESPN UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back, Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. We dive into some NFL coaching hirings because as of yesterday, the last domino has fallen. We now know who all 32 teams' coaches are, who had the best hire, who had the worst this cycle. Going to get to that in a moment. First, your Sports Center update. College football, North Dakota State defeated James Madison 28-20 to on Saturday to win their eighth FCS National Championship. How about that? North Dakota State and what they built up there. How about this for a stat? In the last 11 seasons, North Dakota State has as many national championships as they do losses. They've won eight titles the last 11 years. They've also lost eight games during that time. Pretty incredible. They've done it with three different head coaches, too. New England Patriots wide receiver Julian Edelman was arrested for misdemeanor vandalism Saturday night in Beverly Hills. He jumped on the hood of a car, causing damage. Edelman reportedly had dinner with Paul Pierce and Danny Amendola earlier that night. And finally, a Kansas man is seeking a court-ordered sword fight with his ex-wife to decide custody of their children. 40-year-old David Ostrom has submitted a plea for trial by combat in which he and his ex-wife would duel with swords to decide legal custody of their children. That is your Sports Center update. Glad to have you along once again. I, by the way, I looked that up. Trial by combat was never formally abolished. Technically could be a thing. Someone tried to do it back in 1983 and the Delaware Circuit Court of Appeals or something like that said no to it. So I'm interested to see, does this Kansas court feel the same way? Because there is no legal abolition, or there has been no legal abolition of trial by combat. So I guess there's precedence, there's ground for it if they really want to. Although dueling has been made illegal, but and somebody probably better get on this trial by combat thing and abolish that before 
someone gets hurt. Anyway, that's your Sports Center update. Glad you're along once again. The five NFL head coaching vacancies that came around this cycle have all been filled. Yesterday, the Cleveland Browns named Kevin Stefanski Vikings offensive coordinator as their next head coach. So we've got the five filled. We've got Matt Rule, Joe Judge, Mike McCarthy, Ron Rivera, and Kevin Stefanski. Who made the best hire of those teams? Who made the worst? I'm going to rank those one through five for you. By the way, I talked about the North Dakota State dynasty, what they've done with football. I almost made that stat of the day. I have something I think I like just a little bit more. We haven't played the stat of the day music in a long time, so let's do that quick. New year, new stat of the day music. How about that? Here we go. Remember Yarmir Yager? Well, he's playing professionally in the Czech League right now. He's missed the last six weeks with an injury. He returned yesterday, and he scored two goals, including the game winner, and had two assists. He turns 48 years old next month. With his appearance in a professional game yesterday, for the first time in six weeks, keep in mind, he is now only the second player in professional hockey history to appear in five different decades. Only other player to do it, Gordy Howe. How about that for the Ageless Wonder? Yager and Gordy Howe, the only two players in pro hockey history, doesn't matter what the league is, pro hockey to appear in five different decades. That's pretty darn hard to do at the Ageless Wonder, does it? That's your stat of the day. With that, let's get into ranking some NFL coaches, ranking the hirings that happened over the course of the last few weeks. I just want to go on the record and say that I'm okay with most of these. I like most of these hires. There's one I don't like, though, and that's the one that I'm putting at number five. We're going to start at five and work our way up to one. The only coaching hire that I didn't like was the one that happened yesterday where the Browns picked up Kevin Stefanski, offensive coordinator with the Minnesota Vikings. They wait till the Vikings season is over, and they get the guy who brought Kirk Cousins to his best professional season, who guided him along and worked with him and helped develop him. Now, I don't doubt that Stefanski can develop a quarterback and design a pretty good offense. But for as many times as Kirk Cousins did look good this year, how many games did the Vikings have where their offense just looked lost? They just looked stale. Against the Packers on Monday Night Football might have been the worst game that Stefanski's ever called. How about Saturday where the Vikings managed just seven first downs against the 49ers, where Dalvin Cook was not able to get going. Kirk Cousins didn't put up great numbers. Stephon Diggs only targeted five times. I don't know what was so attractive to Cleveland about Kevin Stefanski from this season. Was the Vikings offense above average league-wide? Yeah, it was. And Kirk Cousins had a great year, but there were just way too many times where they did not show up, where the Vikings didn't have anything going offensively. And it seemed to happen in the biggest game. I like Stefanski as a coordinator. I don't know how he works out as a head coach. But to me, the Browns are a team with maybe the most talented roster of any team. I I would say they're the most talented roster of anybody that was hiring a new coach this offseason. You need to go for a guy who you know has succeeded in the NFL, who's a proven winner, a guy who can command a locker room, a leadership, a culture guy. And Kevin Stefanski hasn't proven to be either of those things. But you know what really makes me want to put them in the five spot is because I don't think Stefanski has ever been their guy. He wasn't last year. I mean, they picked Freddie Kitchens over him. They liked Freddie Kitchens, who went 6-10 and in his one year more than this guy. Now they're going to go with option B. They're going to go with Stefanski this year. 
And he was still option B this year. Because reportedly, Dustin Fox, who's a reporter out of Canton, says that candidates were told that they had to agree to turn in their game plans to the owner and the analytics department by Friday prior to a Sunday game, and they had to attend end-of-the-week analytic meetings to discuss their plans. According to Dustin Fox, a reporter for CantonRep.com, those are the conditions that the Cleveland Browns laid out to any potential candidate. And reportedly, Josh McDaniel said, absolutely not. I'm not turning in my game plan to the owner and the analytics to prove to them that I know what I'm doing. you got to let me coach. You're not sticking your hand in my gumbo. And Josh McDaniels just walked away. Now, And it seemed like going into the weekend, he was prime target number one. That he was the guy the Browns wanted. And now that they didn't get him, they said, all right, let's get the next best thing. Let's get Stefanski. I don't feel like the Browns got their guy. And that's why I put them in the five spot. I just don't trust Stefanski after one year as an offensive coordinator. A year where, yeah, the Vikings offense was above average, but they didn't show up in the biggest games. Number four on my list of head coaching hirings this offseason, I'm going with the Giants and Joe Judge. Now, I want to say I like Joe Judge. I do. I think he had a great press conference. I think he set the tone for what he wants the Giants to be. I think he has a clear vision for what he wants the Giants to look like under him. He's starting to put together his staff. By the way, his potential offensive coordinator just got fired from his job today. We're talking about former Viking offensive coordinators. John Filippo is now being retained by the Jaguars. He's got history with the Giants. I wonder if that's going to be a pairing. Joe Judge hires Filippo as his offensive coordinator. Either or. What I like most about Joe Judge is his attention to detail. And he was a special teams coach with the Patriots. You have to be. On special teams, you have to be attentive down to the last detail. And he is. I like that about him, that he's organized, he has a clear plan, he has a path as far as what he wants the Giants to be. The biggest difference, though, between Joe Judge and his predecessor, Pat Shermer, I want to say I like Pat Shermer. And congrats to him, by the way. He landed an offensive coordinator job yesterday out in Denver. And as we know, he might struggle as a head coach. He is one heck of a coordinator. And Drew Locke is very blessed to have him. And Pat Shermer's going to do well out there with that young quarterback. But let me tell you this. The biggest difference between Joe Judge and Pat Shermer, Shermer is a schemer. He's an analytics guy. Yeah, he struggled as a head coach. No one can deny that he designs an offense well. And he brings young quarterbacks along really well. And for Daniel Jones, for everything that was put on him this year, all the expectations, all the pressure... Yeah, sure, the fumbles, that number was way too high. The turnovers were unacceptable. But keep in mind, Daniel Jones set a Giants rookie record this year with 24 touchdown passes. He also passed for 3,027 yards under Shermer's leadership. The Giants have had some darn good quarterbacks over their years. And for Daniel Jones to set the rookie touchdown record says something about what they can do with analytics, guys. The biggest difference between the predecessor, Shermer, and Joe Judge is Joe Judge is a culture guy. I think Pat Shermer had a hard time leading a locker room, and maybe that's why he's a better assistant coach than he is a head coach. Joe Judge is a culture guy. So you might ask, why don't I put him higher because of all that? Because I don't think the Giants got their first choice either. I think they wanted Matt Rule. I think there was mutual interest there. Then he went to the Panthers. The Giants said, we better jump on option 1B before anybody else does, and we lose our guy again. That being said, 
I'm still fairly optimistic for the Joe Judge years in New York. Number three is indeed Matt Rule. Number three on my list of best head coaching hirings this offseason. And he's there because it's really tough to predict making the jump from the college to the pro level. And very few have been able to do that as a head coach at college to the pros. And we talked about it last week with Jake Durant that Pete Carroll's really the only one who's done that successfully in the modern era. Jumped straight from the college level to being a head coach in the NFL. And he had prior NFL experience before he came back from USC to Seattle. Matt Rule hasn't. Matt Rule, what he's done at both Temple and Baylor, he made Temple a top 25 program during his time there. Philip Walker, his quarterback, he got him to the NFL briefly. He was a backup to Andrew Luck. Now we're going to see him here in less than a month starting for an XFL franchise. Baylor was on its deathbed a couple of years ago, and Matt Rule got them to the Big 12 championship game, got him to a prestigious bowl, the Sugar Bowl. Matt Rule has done an exceptional job everywhere he's gone, but it's a different animal in the pros. He's another culture guy, and I don't want to speculate or let my biggest knock against Matt Rule be speculation, but it kind of is. I do like the hire for Carolina. I think they got a really good guy. I do like that hire by like two others better than him. Number two on my list is Mike McCarthy. I think Mike McCarthy going to Dallas is a great fit. I really thought Cleveland should have got him. A guy who can develop quarterbacks if they want to listen. And a guy who's proven that he could win in the NFL. Instead, he goes to Dallas, where he's got another young quarterback that we don't quite know what he is yet. And as we know, Mike McCarthy is good with quarterbacks, if they're willing to listen. And ultimately... Aaron just didn't want to listen to him. Aaron Rodgers didn't want to listen to Mike McCarthy in Green Bay. Was that right or wrong? That's not for me to say, but Aaron didn't want to listen to McCarthy. That being said, I do think McCarthy is knowledgeable, especially in the offensive end when it comes to quarterbacks. It just doesn't work sometimes. Relationships don't work, and that's what happened in Green Bay. But McCarthy spent his gap year. He took this year off from coaching. That concerns some people. He spent it about as well as he can, getting acclimated to modern football because his old scheme, especially the last few years in Green Bay, was pretty archaic, was pretty weathered, seasoned. And now he's spent a year adjusting himself to the modern game. He did everything right this offseason. Will it be enough to translate to success with the Dallas Cowboys? Well, he's got, arguably, along with Cleveland, the most talented roster of any coach walking into a new team. I still think it's Cleveland. Dallas, I don't think, is far behind. He's got a better running back than he ever had in Green Bay. Will he use him? I don't know. He's got receivers that are probably comparable talent-wise to what he had in Green Bay his final years there. I do like this hire, though. I do think... It was a good hire for Dallas. I don't totally know about the way that they went about it, the hiring process, what have you. But they appear to have found the guy that they wanted. And Mike McCarthy's a guy that I do believe can still win in the NFL. And I like the way that he put himself in the film room this offseason and he did his darndest to acclimate himself to the modern game. And with that, I believe the best head coaching hiring this offseason was the first man off the board, Ron Rivera to the Washington Redskins. Now, again, I don't know why you want the Washington Redskins job. I just feel like that is setting yourself up to fail. But Rivera is a guy that has been to a Super Bowl before. It's weird that you're going to value a guy, at least on my list, who's been to a Super Bowl and not won it over a guy who has won a Super Bowl. But I'm putting Rivera over McCarthy because Rivera, 
I think is a better culture guy, not by much, but just by a little. He's been to a Super Bowl more recently, and he brings in Jack Del Rio as a defensive coordinator. You get a two-for-one deal. And that, to me, is really interesting about Ron Rivera. Because not only is he a great culture guy, he's also a great schemer. He's a very good defensive mind. And the fact that he's going to bring in another very well-respected defensive mind on his coaching staff tells me that Ron Rivera is going to be unselfish. He's going to let Jack Del Rio control the defense, put his system in place. He already is. He's switching them to a 4-3. And Ron Rivera is there to be a manager. He's there to be a culture guy. That he's not going to be authoritarian that he is there to change a culture in Washington. And I guess if there's anyone who can, it would be him, one of the best culture guys in the NFL, because Washington absolutely needs a culture change. So that's my list of the five NFL head coaching hirings this offseason. Number one, Rivera. Number two, McCarthy. Number three, Rule. Number four, Judge. And number five, Stefanski. Let's take our last time out. When we come back, we'll finish off this show. Get you ready for football night. Plus, i got a little baseball news for you next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any of today's show, get caught up on demand. Check out the Sports Pen podcast on the ESPN-UP app or check it out at our website, ESPNUP.com. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad you're along as we wind down this Monday afternoon. Reminder, national championship game tonight, LSU and Clemson, kickoff set for 8 o'clock. If you haven't already, let us know who you think is going to win. Vote in our Twitter poll. It's on the ESPN-UP Twitter, at ESPN-UP. Let your voice be heard. Let us know which Tigers team is taking home the trophy tonight. Tell you what, I've got a bonus segment here for you. We were doing some coaches' rankings all throughout the day. How about something like this? the best coach that was hired during each hiring cycle. So every offseason, who was the best coach from that particular offseason? I've got a list in front of me that I'm going to read off to you here in the coming minutes. First, I want to play this for you, though, because last night in the postgame presser, Marshawn Lynch gave us very Marshawn Lynch content. And if you listen closely, you'll hear him refer to money as chicken. Money is chicken to Marshawn Lynch. I've never heard that before, but it's great audio from Marshawn Lynch. Look, I'll say like this, though, right? It's a vulnerable time for a lot of these young dudes, you feel me? They don't be taking care of their chicken right, you feel me? So if it was me or if I had an opportunity to let these little young sahibs know something, i say take care of y'all money, African, because that don't last forever. Now, I done been on the other side of a retirement, and it's good. When you get over there and you can do what you want to. So I tell y'all right now while y'all in it, take care of y'all bread. So when y'all done, you go ahead and take care of yourself. So while y'all at it right now, take care of y'all bodies. You know what I mean? Don't take care of y'all chicken. You feel me? Don't take care of y'all mentals. Because, look, we ain't lasting that long. You know, I had a couple players that I played with that, you know what I mean? They no longer here no more. They no longer. So, I mean, you feel me? Start taking care of y'all mentals, y'all bodies, and y'all chicken for when y'all you know, ready to walk away, you walk away, and you be able to do what you want to do. But I appreciate it. Thank y'all. I have a good day. I tell you what, before we get into what is turning out to be the breaking news story of the day, let me give you a rankings update. College hockey, basketball, and even baseball. College hockey, Northern Michigan up two spots to number 17 following their weekend sweep over Alaska Anchorage. Meanwhile, you've got 
college basketball. They have Sparty at number 15, dropping a few spots after yesterday's debacle. And then Michigan holds at number 19, following a loss to Minnesota yesterday. The first preseason baseball poll has come out. The top spot belongs to Louisville. First preseason number one ranking in program history for Louisville. They're followed by Vanderbilt, Miami, Florida, Georgia, Texas Tech, and then Arkansas, Auburn, Arizona State, and Mississippi State rounding out the top ten. Michigan following their improbable run to the championship game last year will check in at number 13 to start the 2020 season. Rankings update for you. Let's get into this because a few hours ago the news broke that the hammer has dropped in the city of Houston. The Houston Astros, under that investigation for cheating during the 2017 season en route to their World Series victory, have been punished by Major League Baseball, and they've been punished in a big way, which I'm happy to see. Let me set the scene for you. Back in 2017, Alex Cora, who's now the manager of the Boston Red Sox, who went on to win the World Series the following year, the bench coach for Houston in 2017, would call the replay review room and he would have signs studied based on the replay that is being used for television broadcast. The film would be studied so that the Astros could obtain their opponent's signs. So, Major League Baseball caught him, and today they laid the hammer down. About 2 o'clock this afternoon, our own Jeff Passan here at ESPN tweeted, quote, Breaking. Houston Astros GM Jeff Lunau and manager A.J. Hinch have been suspended for one year after an MLB investigation found the team used technology to cheat during its World Series winning 2017 season. Sources familiar with the punishment tell ESPN. Additionally, Major League Baseball will fine the Astros $5 million and take away their first and second round draft picks in the 2020 and 2021 draft, sources tell ESPN. I'm happy to see it. I'm happy to see it. The hammer's coming down on Houston. I hope it sends a message around the league. And I hope something is placed on Alex Cora. Because he went to Boston, and he did the same thing that he did in Houston as a bench coach, as an assistant. And Alex Cora, keep in mind, worked in TV after the end of his playing career. He went to work in TV before going back to baseball as a coach and eventually a manager. He knows exactly how these replay systems work. You know, I get there's the argument that everybody's probably doing it. You, you can't promote cheating. And when you find someone is guilty of it, you set an example. And I'm happy to see Major League Baseball actually drop a hammer. Because you get worried. Are they just going to let this slide? College football, anyone ever got a scandal against Alabama? You think the NCAA would take them down? In a world where there are federal wiretaps being used for college athletics, you think anybody cares? You think Kansas basketball cares that there are wiretaps and there are supposed sanctions or investigations being put on them? No, because Kansas knows, just as the NCAA does, that Kansas basketball means too much as a brand to college basketball. It's too big to take down, to punish, or drop the hammer on. Alabama football's like that. If you're a big enough brand, you get the feeling that you can skate by, that you can get out of trouble. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, it was reported that in addition to the one-year suspensions, that both Hinch and Lunell were dismissed by Jeff Crane, owner of the Houston Astros. So Hinch and Lunell, while officially being dismissed about an hour ago will still need to serve their not-quite-a-one-year suspension. Technically, 
it is a one baseball season suspension, no matter if either of those two would be picked up by another organization. Because the suspension starts effective immediately and will end one day after the 2020 World Series. But I want to share this tweet with you. No matter what happened, you know, the Astros did the right thing by dismissing Hinch and Lunau. I hope the Red Sox dismiss Cora. But this tweet from TJ Quinn, an investigative journalist here at ESPN, I shared this about an hour ago when he tweeted it out, that as strong as the punishments are, I'm quoting him, one livid GM I spoke to said no punishment will undo the damage done. Other teams might have advanced, like in the postseason, and every round you advance means that you get bonuses. And TJ Quinn went on to point that out, meaning lost bonus money. Pitchers were lit up and will now have to take those numbers into arbitration and free agency. You have pitchers that are having their signs stolen. The Houston batters knew exactly what was coming, and they just lit those guys up. I mean, those are guys' jobs. That's their profession. Okay, it's not always going to be a matter of if they didn't pitch well enough to win, but the Houston batters knew exactly what was coming. That's why I'm glad to see, at least, the hammer come down hard on Houston. I know it can't change the past or what happened, but you got to send a message so something like this doesn't happen again. I tell you what, this has been a dark chapter in a game where there's a lot of pride, where we take a lot of pride. And I'm hoping that the punishments continue to come down, they continue to get harder, so we don't have to go through a chapter like this again. I tell you what, we could go into that even deeper, and we are going to get into that more throughout the week. But I did promise this, kind of, teased it a little bit. I did the work, so we might as well do it. And that would be what I teased earlier in this segment. You know, we talked about, we ranked the five head coaching hires during this coaching cycle. So what if we had the best coach from each of the last how many coaching cycles? We tell you who was the best hire. Remember I said Ron Rivera, I believe, is the best hire of this coaching cycle with Mike McCarthy just after him. How about last year's group of coaches? Because I'm starting to think, based on what we've seen in a one-year sample size, Matt LaFleur is the winner there. Matt LaFleur was the best head coaching hire of anybody from last year's head coaching cycle with Bruce Arians just outside. It's going to be LaFleur... Arians, and then I don't know that anyone else really has separated themselves from the pack. But Matt LaFleur, I would say, has turned out to be the best hire from this past coaching cycle. How about in 2018? You've got some worthy nominees here. John Gruden, even though he's got a losing record in his couple of seasons as Raiders head coach. Frank Reich, there's a case to be made for him. That was also the class that produced Matt Nagy and Matt Patricia. But the obvious winner to me, the best coach that was hired during the 2018 coaching cycle, was Mike Vrabel. Absolutely, it's got to be Mike Vrabel, who's now emerging as a Coach of the Year candidate after slaying the mighty Patriots and the mighty Ravens. He does so with Ryan Tannehill passing for less than 90 yards a game, and the Titans are one win away from going to the Super Bowl. 2017, uh, it's another good class. There were some deserving candidates. But I think Kyle Shanahan, we can all agree, has done more with less that he would probably be the best coach from the 2017 hiring cycle. Although, Sean McVay did get to a Super Bowl. And don't leave out Sean McDermott. What he's done in Buffalo has been pretty incredible. 
2016, that's pretty obvious. It was Doug Peterson. He won a Super Bowl his first year with Philadelphia, and he did so with a backup quarterback. 2015 and 2013, for that matter. It's pretty easy to decide who's the best coach from those classes because they're the only ones who haven't been fired yet. Dan Quinn, the only coach that was hired in 2015 that still has his job, that still hasn't been fired. 2013, Andy Reid. Every other coach in the 2013 hiring cycle has already been fired. There are two left from 2014, and I would give Bill O'Brien the edge over Mike Zimmer because he has a better winning percentage, better record during his time, and he's won more division titles, more playoff berths. So will we look back on this hire two, three, four, five years from now and say, yeah, Ron Rivera was indeed the best hire this offseason? Maybe it will be McCarthy. Maybe it's going to be someone entirely out of the blue altogether. Maybe Kevin Stefanski will succeed in Cleveland because all you had to do to make that team successful was subtract Freddie Kitchens. Maybe, but I still go with Ron Rivera. Tell you what, again, with the College Football National Championship game coming up this evening, I'd be remiss if I didn't send you into the 5 o'clock hour and get you ready for game day, only about three hours till kickoff, without a little Ed Orgeron audio. You know, being Cajun, I'm very proud of being Cajun. My uh, grandparents uh, didn't speak English, and my mother and father spoke Cajun French at the table, and then when they wanted to talk about me, they spoke Cajun French, so I learned Cajun French. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm, ex- you know, I'm excited to be at LSU uh, at home, where we're proud of our Cajun heritage. We're proud of Louisiana. Uh, I just feel at home here. Uh, people that made fun of my accent before, I thank them. That gave me internal motivation to do better. And uh, I do believe the loss to Troy was a turning point in our program. Uh, it helped us realize uh, what we had to get done, what we had to do as coaching staff, as players. We could never let our hands down. We always have our hands up and ready to prepare for every game. Uh, I think that uh, so now the noise is good. And, uh, look, they're going to be on that Twitter machine. I know they will. Uh, you can't stop them. You know what I'm saying? But we don't talk about individual awards. We don't talk about anything uh, except the task at hand. And we keep everything team. And I think that helps us out. I love Coach O sound bites. Like, I'm jealous of the guys that get to cover him on a daily basis. I could listen to Coach O talk all day long. I would just keep listening to it all day. Tell you what, though, a few more headlines before we sign off for the day. In case you missed this over the weekend, the NHL All-Star Game last man in votes have been tallied. Mitch Marner, TJ Oshie, David Perron, and Quinn Hughes are all going to be skating at the All-Star Game this year. The All-Star Tournament, I should say. I love that format. That's just, I love it. It's so great. Elsewhere in the NHL, the New Jersey Devils have fired general manager Ray Shero. Well, Shero is a guy that built the roster that won Pittsburgh a few Stanley Cups, or he built the majority of it by drafting Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin. He's out there if someone's looking for a GM who apparently has an eye for talent. We had a little bit of baseball news over the weekend before, obviously, the bombshell today. The Todd father, Todd Frazier, is headed to Arlington on a one-year $5 million deal. He is the new third baseman for the Texas Rangers. And then the Cardinals are apparently in talks with Nolan Arenado and the Rockies that the Cards are willing to put out a trade offer, and they did this weekend, 
to get Nolan Arenado. I have a few friends who are Cardinals fans back in Iowa, so I messaged them. I'm like, this is the trade deal that the Cardinals are putting out there. You can get the newly acquired single-A prospect, Matt Libatore, I think is how you say his name. He's one of the top prospects in single-A. Dakota Hudson, Carlos Martinez, and Tyler O'Neill. All those guys in exchange for Nolan Arenado. I asked, would you make this trade? And he said, yes. Libertore won't help us right now. Martinez and O'Neill, he didn't exactly talk highly of them. I'm not going to quote him on the air. So he said it's basically Dakota Hudson for Nolan Arenado, and he would do that without hesitation. So Nolan Arenado could be on the move, even if he is. Still won't be the biggest baseball story of the day. One more thing on that story involving the Astros' punishment. Major League Baseball says they will not discipline any player who was involved in that. Any player in the Astros roster at the time, which is significant because the only player who was mentioned by name in Major League Baseball's statement was Carlos Beltran, who is now the manager of the New York Mets. So that's significant. No player is going to be punished. However, there is punishment coming, supposedly, for Alex Cora. And if A.J. Hinch, Jeff Lou now got one-year suspensions... It may very well be more than that for Alex Cora. I'm hoping so. With that, we are out of time. And what else I'm hoping for is that you enjoy the show and that I'll have you again tomorrow for Eastern 3 Central. Until then, enjoy the national championship this evening. I'm Tanner Hoops for ESPN-UP, WZAM, Ishpeming Marquette.